Scripture reading today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 37. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, will, she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. The word of the Lord. Uh, hello and uh, good morning and welcome. Once again, my name is Derek Rishmaui. As Pastor Eric already uh, uh, alluded, or not alluded, clearly stated, um, I'm, the, uh, I'm the campus minister at uh, UC Irvine with RUF, and it's a real pleasure to be with you here this morning. Uh, we do like this tradition for uh, a couple of reasons. One, we, we like coming to hang out with you guys. You're a great church, and it's wonderful to be able to kind of engage in some mutual encouragement with our mission partners. Uh, we, we receive uh, prayers from you and support. We get regular email uh, check-ins from your missions team, which is always so wonderful to know that there's a, there's, a, there's a church that's faithfully praying for us. So we love being able to, you know, give back a little bit and share out of God's word. Also, the pies are, it, it's, you know, it's a plus. So, oh, there we go. We get a little bit more. Sorry, my beard gets in the way of things sometimes, so I'm always a little cautious with that. But in any case, what I wanted to do this morning, all that aside, is to help, uh, help you all turn the corner into the Advent season. Oh, that's, oh, are we okay? We can do Can you guys hear me? Okay, I'm just going gonna, gonna to leave it as is with, with the mic, right? Okay, good. All right. Uh, thank you, though. Um, what I wanted to do, though, is turn the corner into the Advent season with you guys by considering this text out of Luke as a way of reflecting on the lines of the Apostles' Creed. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, we've actually been doing this all quarter with our students at UC Irvine. Uh, we've been working our way slowly, line by line, through the Creed and asking the question, what if Christianity was true? Like in a world kind of choking on meaninglessness and anxiety, what, what if these words, what if the summary of the Christian faith was actually real and you believed it and it made a difference in your life? And so what I want to do is kind of take some of that idea and reflect on that idea with you this morning, but what I want to do this morning is start uh, by thinking about a dead French existentialist, uh, Albert Camus. Uh, Albert Camus wrote this famous essay on the myth of Sisyphus. I don't know if you've, if you've read it recently or know what it says or, or, or know it, but it's a classic kind of expounding the absurdism of ex existentialist philosophy. And in the myth, 
Sisyphus angered the gods. I, you know, there's all, all sorts of different reasons, versions of how he did that. But he angered the gods, and as a punishment, he was sentenced to pushing a huge rock up a mountain and then having it roll back down again so he could push it back up again. It's sort of like the, the, the itsy bitsy spider crawling up the water spout, and then rain comes, washes him out, and he has to go back up again. And it's sort of this, this picture of, of continual pointlessness. But anyways, Camus writes that, that his scorn of the gods, his hatred of death, and his passion for life won him that unspeakable penalty in which the whole being is exerted toward accomplishing nothing. Right? This is humanity's futile existence in Camus', Camus view. Essentially, you work your whole life expending all of this energy, and it ends up going nowhere. It's utterly meaningless. You push a big rock up a hill, and then it rolls back down again. It's absurd. And your only option in this absurd view is your only hope is to kind of like heroically laugh in the face of it and push the rock up the hill again and sort of just say, I know this goes nowhere, but I'm just going to enjoy it anyways. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heroically face this meaninglessness and make it my own. Right? And, and there's, there's something to that. Um, it reminds me of, of Ecclesiastes, right? The beginning of Ecclesiastes, we also went through that this, uh, this fall at UC Irvine. And, and Ecclesiastes talks about some of the meaninglessness uh, in light of the regular rhythms of things, of trying to exert any change, right? The rhythms of the seasons roll on and on, and things don't change. And actually, the rhythms of history seem to roll on and on, and things don't change. Empires rise and empires fall, and it just seems like different variations on the same thing. And if you sit with these themes, you begin to feel the weight of them. We begin to feel bound by the ages, not just of, 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 of history past, but recent history. Our own lives, our family histories, right? Repeating the same mistakes that we've always done. Those, those of our fathers and of our mothers and of ourselves. Even my college students, you know, most of my college students can't even legally drink yet, but I, you know, I talk to them and they still feel bound by the weight of following the same patterns over and over and over again without any, any source of hope, any source of... Sorry, I didn't want to What's, all right. So Sorry. that's okay. I, I have fallen into the pattern of consistently having mic problems. So, um, so coming back to what uh, this said, thank you. Um, a lot of us who feel caught in those patterns, a lot of us feel caught in those patterns, feel like there's this question of what's the point of doing anything? What's the point of trying when nothing's going to change? What's the point of trying when nothing uh, can ever be different? That's what happens in a world with only this world as its horizon. In a world where the natural order is all that there is. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann's this German theologian. He, he wrote a book uh, 40, 50 years ago where he, he, writes, he writes this. He says, it is not possible to speak of believing existence in hope and in radical openness and at the same time considering the world to be a mechanism or a self-contained system of causes and effects in, a, in antithesis to humanity. Hope then fades away to the hope of a solitary soul in the prison of a petrified world and becomes the expression of a, of a 
Gnostic longing for redemption. Talk of the openness of man is bereft of its ground if the world itself is not open at all, but is a closed shell. What he's saying is, it's all very complex, but what he's saying is, that, look, if this world is all there is, is all there is is this cause and effect, and you're just kind of locked in it, nothing can enter in from the outside, then you actually have no hope of anything changing. All you can have is variations on a theme. And so your only hope is escape. Your only hope is a Gnostic longing for escaping your body, escaping this world. And so, again, there is a threatening crisis of meaning. What is the point of trying to do anything different or changing in this world? I bring all this up because the doctrines that were in the text we're going to consider today, the virginal conception of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, I think are one of the ways that Christianity actually begins to give us hope and meaning in this world. But to see that, what I want to do is I want to tackle this in kind of like three parts. The, the, first, the first part, I just want to talk about what does the doctrine mean? Like, what does it mean for Jesus to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? And then second, why? Why was he conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? Why that way? And then third, finally, and briefly, what difference does that make to you today? Does that sound good? There's a nice little progression there? All right. Awesome. Because that's, that's what I have in my notes. So that's my only option right now. Um, <laughs> So what I want to do is just start with, actually, you know what I want to do is I want to pray, and then we'll get into, into how this unfolds. Holy Father, you are good, and you are kind, and you are merciful, and you are powerful. And so we ask you right now that in your power, your Holy Spirit would come in this time and work. Work through the words that I speak, work through the texts that we're examining, and work in our hearts to Open us up to the possibilities of what you want to do in our hearts and minds as we reflect on what you have done in the life and the death and even the, the birth specifically of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So just to begin, uh, I just want to reiterate a very basic truth of Christianity, which is the central truth of Christianity, which is that Jesus is not just some guy, right? Jesus is God and man. He's the God man. Right? So the claim is not that he's just like half God, half man, or a man who was really good and then got adopted by God and said, yeah, we'll call him God too, or, or that he's some temporary manifestation of God, like some avatar of God that kind of winked into existence and then winked back out. Uh, no, he is the second person of the Holy Trinity, the eternal son who lives eternally in communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit and created the world and everything in it. That person became human, took on human nature, added it to himself, and that is Jesus. I'm going to assume that. That is our baseline as we, as we, as we look at this text, as we look at this, at, this, at this doctrine. And what this doctrine teaches is a doctrine about that, how that came to be. It teaches that Jesus had no earthly human father, right? He was not conceived through human sexual union, Instead, an angel came to this young woman, which we just read, right? An angel came to this woman, Mary, in the first century Palestine, and, and told her that she was going to have a child. How? Oh, well, the Holy Spirit, by his power, was going to overshadow her and uh, bring about this child's existence by his power within her. So even though she'd never had sex, right, she's a virgin, it says that several times, she would uh, conceive and then bear and bring to term and deliver 
a baby boy named Jesus. And this child would also be the one eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Now, right off the bat, this starts to clarify a few things for us. Uh, first, Jesus, again, was not conceived by sexual union like the pagan gods, right? So this isn't like the ancient myths where, you know, uh, Zeus would see a woman, uh, things would happen, and then Hercules uh, arrives. This is not how that works, right? This is not paganism. This is not polytheism. This is not, this is not actually uh, the way um, some... Some have conceived, people hear the, the Holy Trinity. Uh, I know some of our Muslim neighbors have heard this and heard this conception that, that the Holy Trinity is Father, Son, and then Mary. Right? That's not the doctrine of the Trinity, and that's not the doctrine of the virgin birth. Right? Instead, God, by the power and agency of the Holy Spirit, took genetic material from Mary and somehow miraculously fertilized it to create a human body and soul for the Son. We don't know exactly how. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna speculate as to the like the physical metaphysics of it, but here's the important point. In doing this, we say that he assumed or added human nature to himself, right? Cyril of Alexandria, as his fourth century father and pastor, he put it this way. He says that is taking the flesh of the Holy Virgin and making it his own from the womb. He underwent a birth like ours and came forth a man of a woman not throwing off what he was, even though he became a man by the assumption of the flesh and blood, yet still remaining what he was, that is God indeed, in nature and in truth. So we don't say that the flesh was changed into the nature of the Godhead, or that the nature of the word was transformed into the nature of flesh, for he's unchangeable and unalterable. So what he's saying is that God stays God and then adds humanity to himself. Humanity doesn't become divine, God doesn't become human in the sense that God doesn't, like, transform. He is God and man forever. Now, at this point, you might ask, okay, but, but really, Derek, how does that work? Right? Give me more. And I'll just be honest and say I'm not sure. And here folks sort of get skeptical, and they, and they say, you know, isn't this whole business, you're making up this whole technical vocabulary for what really is just uh, a feature of ancient mythological thinking, uh, where folks thought that sort of thing could happen, right? There's a famous New Testament scholar, Rudolf Bultmann. He is this famous quote that gets trotted out because it's a good one. Uh, he says, it's impossible to use electrical light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. Essentially, we know too much science to believe what they believed back then. Is that really the case, though? Right? First of all, if you look at the text, again, just to be clear, people back then knew how babies were made. Right? That wasn't, Mary asked, how is this to be if I am a virgin? I've never been with a man. And in Matthew, we find out that Joseph uh, was set to put her aside and divorce her when he found out she came up pregnant. So apparently, Joseph knew how the birds and the bees worked too. So modern, modern science did not break that bit of biology to us. We knew it a long time ago. Here's the point. This is a miracle, right? This is, not, this is not a claim about how things actually work all the time. This is a claim about how it worked one time, by the power of God. God intervened in the ordinary course of the laws of nature and did something different, did something new. So conceptually, if you believe the first few verses of the Bible, that God created the whole universe and everything in it, including uh, 
humans and human nature and you know, uh, genes and chromosomes and X's and Y's, it is not much of a stretch to believe that that creator God could fertilize one egg and make one virgin pregnant. Like, it's not really that much of a stretch. Now, you may still find it improbable, and that's fair, but impossible it is not if you believe the first few lines of the Bible. So that... And that was all kind of um, metaphysical and technical and all that. And the question is, why? Why do it that way? Why go to all that trouble to do it that way? And this is where we have a very different answer, a very different answer. And it begins uh, with a story. It begins actually with the beginning story of the Bible. Um, The Bible begins with a story of another man made by the power of God, who had no human parents, a man named Adam. Adam was created, and then his wife Eve, and they were made good. And God placed him in the Garden of Eden, and his purpose was to create and to keep the garden, to expand the garden, to make a beautiful kingdom of God for the whole world to live in and dwell in, and dwell in relationship with God under his rule. But the Bible says that Adam sinned and fell away from that relationship with God. He disobeyed. This is the story of Adam eating the fruit. Right? God gave him every tree in the garden to eat from, all that he could have needed. But instead, he was tempted by the serpent, tempted by the devil, to eat the tree, eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree that he was forbidden to eat from as a test. And in so doing, he and his wife, Eve, fell away from God. And they were cursed with death. And in fact, and it makes sense, right? If God is the source of life and then you reject God and you break away from relationship with him, that leads to death. That makes sense. But here's where it starts to connect with us. That fall way back then didn't just affect him. It actually affected us. Romans chapter 5, in Romans chapter 5, Paul says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And the teaching here is that Adam's fall didn't just affect him. It affected everyone that came after him. Now, why is that? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. The the Shorter Catechism is just a summary of what we believe as Presbyterians. We we believe uh, the Bible teaches. And so the Shorter Catechism, question 22, puts it this way. The covenant being made with Adam as a public person, not for himself only, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. And what that, what that says is that Adam wasn't just your average guy. It was, he wasn't just this single individual in the garden. He wasn't just the first guy. He was a representative man. He was a public person. He was a king. So when you're king picks a fight. When your king goes to war, your whole nation goes to war. When Congress votes a war, your whole nation goes to war. In that sense, when Adam went to war with God, when Adam broke faith with God, he involved everyone under his care, everyone after him in that same fight. And so the curse that fell on him falls on everyone else after him. And it's not just that. Uh, it's, think, about, think, about a, think about a stream. Think about a river. If you put a little bit of poison, a little bit of pollution up at, the, up, up at the headwaters of a river, it pollutes the whole river after it, right? 
everything that follows after it. Adam was the headwaters of the whole human race. And so everyone after him, descending, descending from him, like it says, an ordinary generation, is impacted by the, by the cataclysmic decision that he made in the garden. And so everyone is implicated and both caught under the curse of sin, but then also under the effects of sin and the patterns of sin. But here's the thing. Early in that story, even though it's this cataclysmic story of sin and judgment, there is a note of mercy. It comes in Exodus chapter 3, where God, actually it's in the middle of a curse. When God curses the serpent, the devil, who tempted Adam and Eve to fall away from God, he says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Did you catch that? God is going to put enmity between the seed of the, the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, and the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. That's not necessarily what you'd expect, right? This is a patriarchal culture and society. You, you name kids, their offspring uh, of, of the man. But here, it's the offspring of the woman. And right at the beginning, theologians have said for centuries that there is this, there's the beginnings and the hint of, of, of a unique coming offspring who would be the seed and the offspring of a woman who would come and save his people, save Eve, save Adam, and save all their descendants from sin by defeating their enemy. Now, I can't, I can't get into all the details of all, those, of all of those uh, echoes and all those prophecies as they come down through Scripture, but this kicks off the storyline of Scripture, and at the center of this storyline is God's plan to save humanity. He saves humanity by choosing a people, by actually creating a people, by calling a man named Abraham, one of the patriarchs. We just lit, lit a candle thinking about him. And God calls Abram. And from this one man, he, 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 there are several uh, who, who descend, who then develop into 12 tribes, who then develop into a nation, who are then led into Egypt, who are then enslaved, who are then led out from Egypt and into a promised land and redeemed. And then he gives that people institutions, including a kingship, which is supposed to represent and model God's own kingship. And the greatest of these kings is a man named David. A young man, a deliverer who saves his people from their enemies, who delivers them from the Philistines, who delivers them from war on all sides. And God makes a promise to this man that one day, uh, that actually for all days, someone would sit on the throne from the line of David. He would never lack someone, an heir from his line. And they would rule forever. Within that history of Israel, within that long story of God's long-term plan to save them, there is this tender, poignant, and really sensitive sub-theme that emerges. It's this theme of women who cannot have children, uh, barren women as they're called in Scripture, suddenly conceiving and having miracle children at key points within Israel's history. It's actually how Israel's history begins. God calls Abram and Sarai, uh, who are very old, and he promises them a child. 
And not for another 20 years do they have this child, Isaac, this child of the promise. With Romans, we read that she, when she was far past the age of bearing children. But the people of God are born by a miracle through this woman after her, her longing and her great expectation. And the same thing is true of Rachel, her granddaughter in the faith, who fails to conceive until she has Joseph, another child, who then rises and through a long travail of, of, of being sold into slavery and rising to power in Egypt, ends up becoming the savior of his people by, present, by preventing death through the famine. And then again, we learn later in Israel's history during the time of the judges when, when Israel herself, in a sense, was spiritually uh, barren, unable to bear righteous sons. God speaks and promises to another woman who could not conceive Hannah, and he tells her that she will bear a son, and Samuel, Israel's greatest prophet, is born, who leads people back down the road of righteousness and true faith in God. And this is this theme that continues throughout Scripture. We're at these key moments when it all seems hopeless. God gives a child who by all earthly power should not be born. And all of this brings us to the first century when Mary receives a visit from an angel. Because at that time in Israel's history, Israel was also once again hopeless. They had been in subjection to the Romans for quite some time and really a, a, a series of rulers for centuries. Why? Because it turns out through the whole long history of Abraham and Isaac and the people of Israel and David, they had had a habit of repeating Adam's sin. See, even though that they were part of God's plan to set people free from the pattern of sin and death, they were still caught up in it. The prophet Hosea speaks of it this way in the 8th century. He says, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. The people of God worshipped other gods. They, sent, they, they shed innocent blood. They persecuted the poor. They gave themselves up to sexual debauchery. They did every sin in the book. Like Adam, their forefather, they were caught in the same patterns that led to death. And so history repeated itself over and over again until it seemed to come to a dead end. And then an angel shows up to a young virgin to tell her that a baby's coming. And in fact, not just one baby, but two. Her, her, her older cousin, Elizabeth, who was far past the age of bearing children, was now six months pregnant. And so we see in her this bridge of this theme of the women who cannot conceive now coming and finding their fulfillment in this young woman who, by all rights, should not conceive. And this baby will arrive, and what, who will he be? This baby will be called Jesus, who comes from the bloodline of King David, who descends from Abraham, who goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And it turns out he is the promised king, the one who will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And here we have a bridge with all of these various themes kind of coalescing. The hope of a king, the birth of a miracle child, and new life for Israel at a time when death was closing in on her. This is like, uh, so, so we're coming up on the, on the Christmas season, and, and one of our family traditions is watching Lord of the Rings every year because those are Christmas movies. I don't know if you know that. Um, 
And what's the third one? The return of the king, right? What's the whole, the whole climax there is Aragorn, the ranger. Will he take up the Isildur's heir? Isildur, just from the nerdery. He's the guy who originally cut the ring off Sauron, and then, and then he took the ring for himself and, 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 and plunged all of Middle-earth into chaos again. And, and, and the, the question is whether or not Aragorn's going to, like, take up his, his forefather's sword and reforge it and then defeat Sauron and defeat evil again, right? And that's all just a ripoff of this storyline. Tolkien consciously did it. It's, it's a great ripoff, but it, it, it's a ripoff of this. And there's something even more remarkable in this story, though, right? Because there's a radical difference here. In The Lord of the Rings, Aragorn is just a descendant. Here, there is something radically new that happens in the bloodline. Jesus is not conceived like everyone who came before him. He represents, he's going to be born like everybody else, but he represents something new in history. A new start within the old bloodline. He is holy, is what it says. He is set apart for a task. He is unstained by sin and not corrupted like everyone else who comes before him. He is God's son in human flesh. This is why Paul calls him a new Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. He represents the birth of a new humanity within the midst of the old humanity. And he does this so he can live a new kind of life in the middle of it and bring about salvation for us through it. Uh, the, the church father, Irenaeus, had this concept he called recapitulation, this reheading, where essentially what, what, what happens is the son is born within our storyline. And then he lives our lives, but instead of all the places where we, where we failed, he succeeds. Right? He like retells the story. He resums up the whole in himself, in his life, and in his death, in his resurrection. And he undoes the curse of our old way of living. I have a long quote here, but this is just way too, I'm, I'm, I'm going to skip it here, but this, this great line right here, he has therefore, in his work of recapitulation, summed up all things, both waging war against our enemy and crushing him, who had at the beginning led us away as captives of an Adam and trampled on his head. He said, by reliving our lives for us, by, by, by succeeding where Adam failed, by remaining faithful where Israel was faithless, what Jesus did was that Jesus won. Jesus broke out of the pattern and reverses all that as a way of making a way for us to live again in him. And this is why God became man. And this is why Jesus was born of a virgin. After being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, in order to accomplish this and to make it visible within our lives, before our faces, at the center of history. The final question is, uh, comes again, how does this change things for us? Right? What, what does it mean if, if this is true? How does this actually touch down in my life right now? There are a million ways uh, it changes things, but the first thing I'm going to say is that because of what Jesus has done, because he was born of a virgin, because we live in that kind of universe, because that kind of a God is real, because Jesus has recapitulated the human story in himself, you have the hope that life can be different. We're not living in the myth of Sisyphus. You're not just pushing a rock up a hill and waiting for it to roll back down again. It's not pointless, right? For one thing, we don't, it tells us this, we don't live in a chain of 
interlocking causal systems, cause and effect that can't be broken out of. Why? Because there's a God who is outside of the system. There is a God who created the world. It's, we don't just live in a world of cause and effect. We live in a world where God rules and reigns, and it is his world, and he can do something new. Second, it means you're not just doomed to repeat your old sins and failures, to relive the curse of your family line. I don't know what, I don't know what it is for you. I've lived long enough to know that there are a lot of, lot of I don't know, demons that haunt our storylines that we feel like we can't break out of. I don't know if it's alcoholism. I don't know if it's abuse codependent relationships. I don't know what it is the thing where you keep saying, I don't know that we can break free from this curse that has dogged me my whole life. But the good news of this virgin birth is that you don't have to keep living in Adam's line. You can live in Jesus's. The virgin birth and Jesus by his conception by the Holy Spirit means that something new can happen, something holy can emerge. Jesus emerged within the bloodline of Adam as a holy Messiah, and out of the bloodline of the history of your life can emerge a new person as you are born anew in Jesus. God can miraculously intervene in your heart and mind and life and actually change you from the inside out, which means that you're not bound forever to repeat those old mistakes. Because this is what the Bible says happens, right? When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is given to you. Actually, the Holy Spirit renews you. The same Holy Spirit who created Jesus, the, 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 the body and soul of Jesus within the womb of Mary miraculously can actually take your heart and rebirth it, renew it, renew you from the inside out. Heart, mind, soul, strength. And all it takes is hearing the good news and responding in faith, just like Mary did. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to your word. All it is is hearing the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, what he's done, and saying, yes, let it be unto me. I think a lot of us don't live as if that's true. Some of us have never actually believed that to be true. And, and if that's you today, the invitation is for you to, to respond and hear. And if you want to talk to any of the elders, Pastor Eric, about that, um, uh, please do so. Talk to somebody after the service. But for some of you, I think, um, you believe this, you have believed this, and yet it doesn't actually touch down you, in your hearts, knowing that the Holy Spirit is actually there doing work. You actually do have hope today. You're not bound. And I just need you to hear that. Um, and the even greater news on that is that this is, this is grace. Right? God doesn't do this for Israel because they were awesome. God doesn't do this for us because we earned it. God didn't do this for us because we, we managed to, to pull off something amazing and, 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 and deserve this radical change in our hearts. God does this because he does it, because he's merciful and good 
and true, and he loves us. And so the call is for us to respond in faith and to trust and have hope. This is who God is. This is the world we live in. One where Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, which means that you can be born anew. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Holy Father, you are a God who works miracles. You are a God who is not hemmed in by our stories. You're a God who comes into the world and tells a new story in your son. We ask you right now, in this time, in this place, you would allow us to live in it, live as if it's true, and walk with you in hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen.